The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. It's joining me for the hour is Alistair McLeod, head of research for Gold Money. Uh, Alistair, introduce yourself here to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get involved and interested in gold and precious metals? And what are you doing today? Well, I'm sort of a pretty old man now. I mean, I first I first became a stockbroker in 1970, and um, of course, you know, a year later uh, we went on to a pure fiat standard. So I struggled to understand that and became what you might call a gold bug in the 1970s. And then the feeling went away. Um, and then I bumped into James Turk and the feeling came back again. And so ever since then, I've really been researching, um, uh, you know, gold, the economics, um, you know, money, the relationship between money and credit and all the rest of it. And I must admit, had a thoroughly good time of it. And gold money have been very, very supportive of my work. I can't think there are many places where I could write with the freedom that I have. I mean, I, I, I don't criticize individuals. I don't get involved with politics. But, um, you know, I call out the Keynesians. I call out the monetarists. I mean, basically, I have a load of fun and I hope that I educate people on the way. So that's basically what I do and who I am. Uh, it seems to be very easy to call out uh, most people nowadays because most people seemingly are very wrong on <laughs> the way that the the system works. So I, I, I changed the name of the Twitter space kind of last minute to here comes the banking crisis. Um, just going through some of your recent tweets. Um, I want you to lay out for the audience just first of all, short term, what the hell is happening? Uh, I've been in North Carolina for a couple of days. Uh, I see the headlines. And it looks like it's seemingly out of nowhere. And it's like, well, I guess we're in a crisis. Yeah. I mean, I, Michael, that's that's the nature of a banking crisis. I mean, we basically, um, uh, you know, we might have uh, a few months ago started worrying about something like Credit Suisse or something like that. And um, then the feeling goes away and you think everything's all right. And then suddenly you get caught on something completely unexpected. And I think that's really what's happened today with this, um, this, this bank in California, which seems to me has got um, virtually the whole of the venture capital industry in California, <laughs> all, all as depositors. And of course, there will be depositors in amounts which are far greater than the um, deposit guarantee. So you can see that I think the ripples from this uh, won't be confined just to banking. And not only that, but the effect on Global bank share prices has been really very significant. 
And I think it's worth making the point of the GSIBs, the global systemically important banks, all around the world, with the honourable exception of America, their share prices are standing at very substantial discounts to book values. I mean, when you get something standing at something like 20 to 30% of book value, that's not telling you that stock's cheap. It's telling you that the market's saying this is bust. And if you want to have some option money on it not being bust, this is what you pay. And it's been like that now for the last, what, three years, four years, five years? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just a crazy, crazy situation. And then, of course, we had the, um, uh, the repo blow up um, in September 2019. And that was the first indication, I think, that um, banks were running out of balance sheet space. And in my view, the reason that you've got such a, a high level of uh, reverse repos at the Fed is basically the banks are turning uh, deposits away because they, they do not have the balance sheet space to, to handle them. And not only that, but what they do is they become selective about what sort of deposits they have. And under the new um, Basel III rules, basically, um, if you have small deposits, because they're guaranteed by the FDIC or whatever the, the equivalent is abroad, then according to the uh, net stable funding ratio, that is very, very good. It's big deposits that they don't like because they can shift very, very quickly. So the irony in all this is that we're seeing something which I think is likely to spook small depositors. Um, and yet, under the Basel rules, this, is, this stuff is uh, seen to be relatively safe. So I think there's a, quite an experience we've got to go through on this. Not least, there is also the change in bailout rules, because after the Lehman crisis, and I insist incidentally on calling it the Lehman crisis, not the great financial crisis, because the great financial crisis, I think we've yet to face. But uh, after the Lehman crisis, everybody um, introduced legislation, or at least amongst the G20, to um, uh, do bail-ins rather than bailouts. So on a global banking crisis or um, problem, uh, you can see that there's a lot of um, room for um, misunderstanding by the central banks. Um, I mean, the idea that depositors are going to start thinking, my God, we've got to get out of this bank quickly and go into something safe, like uh, you know, a, a bigger bank, which is too big to fail. You can see that the run really can start amongst the smaller banks. And I think that's probably what we've begun to see today. I mean, to me, this is this is not just you know, a sort of one-off accident, something that can be handled and all the rest of it. This, to me, is a signal of something far larger to come. Yeah, I, I have to say I, I largely agree. I keep, I keep, you know, just for those, and I've said this in the prior two spaces, you know, all throughout February, I was saying March, 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 you know, basically alluding to the idea that I thought there was a higher risk probability really towards the end of March, uh, given some of the intermarket relationships that I track, but that it wouldn't necessarily be the credit event. And while I myself still am not, that confident that this is the start of a credit event, it is pretty remarkable. As much as it's, it's interesting to me, uh, Alistair, a lot of people, you know, for the last several months have been focusing on Credit Suisse as an example, right? Of you know a crisis warning sign for European financials. If you look at U.S. financials relative to European financials, our our bank stocks have done far worse than Europe. I mean, it seems like it's actually the U.S. which is the the real problem point this time around. The thing that's crazy about this, Michael, is that the balance sheet ratios in Europe are far worse, amongst, certainly amongst the, the, the GSIBs, uh, which I look at. I don't look at the regional banks. So there's just too many of them for me to look at. 
But amongst the GCIPs, I mean, we're looking at asset to equity ratios in Japan and in the Eurozone in excess of 20 times. I mean, the leverage on that is absolutely huge. And we're talking about two jurisdictions which went into negative yields. And indeed, in Japan, I think it's up to two years is still negative. Two years maturities are still negative. I mean, this is this is not a good starting point for rising interest rates. And in my view, the rise in interest rates is not over yet. I think what's happened is that we are, we've actually come out of that very long period of declining interest rates. We're now into a period of rising interest rates. Either, rise, either interest rates rise or the currencies get trashed or both. And I think that is the underlying problem that we have in the banks because, you know, they've got two two effective problems. I mean, the first thing that happens, and we saw this with a decent rally in bank shares, um, some decent profits posted, is that when you get a rise in interest rates, initially it's good for bank margins. That's, that's, that's easy to understand. But then when it gets to a certain point, you find that the losses on balance sheet assets, you know, whether it's... Um, you know, bonds or bills or whatever. It's, you know, just accumulating losses on their balance sheets, in, you know, from financial um, uh, assets. And, and then shortly afterwards, you find that you get enormous losses building up from uh, non-performing loans. So, Which, by the way, not marked to market of, daily. This is, I think, the key point. It's, 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 most people don't realize it until it's actually a priced asset. But you yeah. need a transaction for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing that, um, you know, nothing really seems to be marked to market. I mean, it's all sort of hidden. Um, well, I suppose it was ever thus, but they just find new ways of hiding things. And, uh, you know, when you do get a, an event like this, um, you know, and banks starting to show that um, actually they're not half as healthy as the uh, last set of numbers showed, you find all sorts of things come out of the woodwork. And it's far worse than you could possibly imagine on whatever you've been presented in terms of financials. So this is, this is um, I think this one's going to run and run. And I would say that, I mean, I come back to the point that I think this bank failure in America um, is the start of something which is going to go uh, abroad. I can see that the Japanese system, I mean, and just look at the losses that the central banks have that, that they're hiding on their balance sheets. I mean, the losses on the Bank of uh, Japan's balance sheets are astronomic. I mean, they more or less cornered the market in 10-year um, JGBs. And if you look at uh, their portfolio, they've not just got 10-year JGBs, they've also got uh, 20 years, 30 years and 40 year maturities. I mean, you know, the price volatility on that for a small change in yield is just absolutely enormous. And it wipes out the bank's capital. The bank's capital is only uh, 100 million yen. And yet uh, I calculated that the losses in this last year alone on that portfolio was in the region of 4,500 times the bank's cap. Now, you know, they all say that um, a central bank can continue because it can print money and all the rest of it. Yeah. And it's actually quite easy to refinance a central bank because all you do is you make a loan to your shareholder, who is presumably the government, and rebook it on the other side of your balance sheet as equity. Job done. So that's not a problem. But how are you going to do that for the ECB? The ECB has got, as its shareholders, all the individual national central banks within the euro system. Each of those banks has probably got to get parliamentary approval in order to recapitalize themselves, firstly, 
and to provide the extra equity to recapitalize the ECB. Now, I can just see that in the German parliament, the Bundestag, I can see the politicians saying, now, hold on, wait a minute. What about these target two loans that are owed to the Bundesbank? There's 1.1 or 1.2 trillion euros owed to the Bundesbank. What's the status of that? Is that a good debt, bad debt? Should we be taking that into account? Could we not be using that, if you like, to um, get that paid off so that we can recapitalize uh, the Bundesbank that way? So you can see, Michael, that you know, this is a bag of worms. And once the politicians start getting involved, I mean, it's going to be virtually impossible to resolve. And it's global, 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 global. But that doesn't mean it has to all crater next week, right? So, I mean, like, like 2008 took time to play out, right? I mean, in terms of even just the sequence of, of returns, even after Lehman Brothers, you had plenty of up weeks. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I mean, I think a very good example of that is that the first signs of this banking failure we had in the UK back in, I think it was 2000, late 2007, when Northern Rock, which was um, one of our rather highly leveraged uh, mortgage lending banks, um, there was a run on that and that was uh, closed down the following February. I mean, this is well ahead of the Lehman event, but it sort of gave us a signal, if you like. And I do remember when Lehman failed, there was that moment when you were sort of looking into the abyss and you're thinking, my God, how are they going to get out of this? You know, what's going to happen to us all? It was that horrid, horrid moment. And I think we're going to get there again. And the other thing worth making the point um, is the sort of Austrian business cycle is actually driven by a bank credit cycle. And if you look at the uh, occurrence of bank crises or, um, you know, maybe not major bank crises, but it varies from you know, something as bad as Lehman to something that gets papered over, it's a 10-year cycle, roughly. And we're now, what, 13, 14 years since the last one. So this is this is stretched and stretched and stretched. And the amount of credit that has been expanded in on the bank's balance sheets, giving leverage factors, as they say, in uh, Japan and uh, in the Eurozone in excess of 20 times, just indicates that this time it's got the potential to be far worse than anything we saw at the time of the Lehman crisis. And I think another point worth making is that um, the interconnectivity between uh, banks, major banks, and particularly the GSIBs, is absolutely enormous. We've got the whole of the, uh, uh, the, whole of the derivatives um, industry, if you like. On top of that, what's going to happen to that? Counterparty failures in derivatives are going to be no joke at all. So the central banks are tasked with ensuring that no significant bank fails. They've all got to be rescued. And when it comes to the smaller banks, once you start seeing that there's a few more credit suisses around, you cannot afford to just let the smaller banks go under either. So this is, um, this is going to be very, very testing time. So let's play it out. Um, you have a credit crisis driven by... You know, what's going on in the financial sector, banks, the Fed will respond to it at some point, but probably not right away. And it seems to me like the fastest way to break inflation is with a credit events, right? I mean, every credit event is inherently deflationary, at least initially, then there's reflation that comes after that. I mean, is this sort of the, the way that inflation ultimately breaks? It's not really about interest rates, but it's about uh, the banking system faltering. Yeah, I would say in the past, um, the relationship between um, the bank credit cycle and um, banks faltering and uh, the purchasing power of the currency, I think that's, you know, that's an established relationship insofar as, uh, you know, what happens is you get flights to safety and all the rest of it. And 
the currency sort of goes through it. But this time, I think it's um, it's not going to be the case. Uh, we we have a, a, a real problem, and I would hate to be in Jay Powell's position because either he deals with the inflation monster, and the inflation monster is going to require higher interest rates than this. It's not just a question of satisfying domestic holders of dollars. It's a question of ensuring that the foreigners don't sell their dollars. And on the last um, Treasury um, international capital figures, the tick figures, the total holdings of foreigners in dollars was around about $30 trillion. Now, that's more than the GDP of America. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, investments in bonds. We're talking about um, treasury bills. We're talking about bank deposits. Bank deposits, I think, around about $6 trillion. And we're also talking about $12 trillion in equities. I mean, the point is that um, Jay Powell has got to ensure that the foreigners don't start selling en masse. And here, of course, geopolitics kicks in because you've got um, the Russian situation. You've got Russia teaming up with China, very definitely. I mean, that's no surprise at all. Um, And they're beginning to think about protecting themselves from a currency fallout in the West. And uh, Putin um, stood up and made a speech at the St. Petersburg uh, International Forum, and that was back in June. And he told the 81 government delegations there quite clearly why should you hold dollars or euros when they can make those absolutely valueless? Why have your gold stored in locations amongst the Western Alliance? And I mean, basically, he's ticked them off that at some stage, the dollar and the euro have got to be sold down. You've got to get out of it and you've got to get into gold. And this is fascinating because Glaziev, who um, is his sort of if you like, economic guru, who's uh, advising on a new trade currency uh, in uh, Central Europe, the uh, Eurasian Economic Union, he's moving towards gold. He's also the man behind the Moscow Gold Exchange. So what we've got, I think, rapidly um, uh, coming about is a contrast between fiat currencies and a trade currency, which will be effectively tied to gold. So the, the the whole foreign interest thing is the thing to watch as far as the dollar is concerned. If the foreigners start selling, then there's a huge problem. Now, I am sure that Jay Powell is aware of this, and I'm sure that this is one reason why he just feels at the moment he can't let go of this inflation tiger, because if he does, there'll be a run on the dollar. And of course, we're all aware that um, you know the economy isn't doing that well. You keep on getting figures saying that um, actually GDP is better than it was, but all GDP is, it's, uh, it's the sum total of the currency value of transactions. And if you, if you debauch the currency, GDP goes up. 
And, uh, you know, the, the inflation compensation actually doesn't go up with it. So what we're seeing, I think, is not a strong economy. We're just seeing a weaker, a weaker purchasing power for the dollar. It is it is interesting. Just even I put that tweet out as we were chatting. So I'm I'm trying to myself get a sense of what the market internally is saying. Um, like even today, right? Okay, so again, and I hear you. I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying on sort of the the, the contagion point, which I think is 100 percent spot on. But I always go back to path matters more than prediction. Uh, you know, you would think that if it's going to be a contagion, and that if we're in at the early start of a credit crisis, that emerging markets would get slammed. Not the case today, right? Pretty much flat. If you just look at some of the emerging market funds, if you were to say that this is a start of a credit crisis, well, historically, what happens? The dollar actually rises. Now, to your point, maybe there's other dynamics in the currency landscape that are going to throw off the idea that the dollar acts as a safe haven this time around, like it did last year, where it was the clear risk-off winner. But um, when you think about the question of whether the market's initial reaction to something happening is right or wrong. How do you yourself assess if it's a mispricing or if it's the start of something bigger? Well, it's it's an interesting question because um, I must admit I don't follow markets, you know, in, in in the more general sense as closely as as you do. And it hadn't actually occurred to me that what we're seeing is a problem which is really confined to the larger currencies rather than the smaller currencies, smaller economies, whatever. Um, I think. One of the problems really also with, with looking at um, the effect on currencies is, of course, you see that shifts between dollars, euros, uh, dollars, yen, you've got, um, you know, you've got unwinding of positions going on and all the rest of it. And it's very easy to just think in those terms. Um, but actually, I think what um, the big Asian story is going to be, it's all going to be about commodities. So I think that the banks will be dumping um, uh paper money, if you like, fiat currencies, uh, in order to get stores of needed commodities, you know, copper, oil, whatever, whatever. And I think that's that's why, just looking at the currencies, it's, it's actually going to be rather confusing. But I think the key to it is you're going to see foreigners selling down dollars because that is where they exposed. I mean, 30 trillion is not a trivial amount. And as far as the equity market is concerned, portfolio is running at about 12 trillion. I mean, if you're a foreigner, do you really need to have an exposure there? You might need to have some dollars for to settle trade bills and things like that, but you don't need all that. And of course, this is um, one of the things which um, might confuse people because they see they see the euro begin to sort of rise a bit, and they sort of think, "Hold on, you know, the financial condition in eurozone is far worse than it is in America." True, but you know, it depends who's actually got what. Where are they? And it's. Um, you know, when things start going wrong, basically you sell the foreign stuff first because you're accounting. You know, if you're a eurozone bank, you're accounting in euros, and to that extent, having dollar investments is a currency risk. Do you need the currency risk when everything's falling apart at home? No, you don't. So I think um, I think really in answer to your basic point, it's it's a mixture of two things. I think the flows that we're going to see are really going to be driven by the repatriation of currency. And at the same time, I think we're going to see flows out of paper currencies going into commodities. And commodities, I think, have got an, an enormous um, potential because, I mean, China's plans really are to invest um, in, uh, you know, sort of, if you like, uh, um, transport facilities, communications, factories, and all the rest of it, industrializing the whole of Asia. 
This is going to take an enormous amount of money. And the great thing about China is she's got the savings to be able to back it up. So she can do that on a more or less non-inflationary basis or a relatively low inflation basis because the Chinese citizens save over 40% of their income. I mean, it's a staggering amount, particularly when you compare it with us in the UK and you Americans. I mean, savings? What savings? Yeah. And here, I don't know about America so much, but here, if you've got any savings, the government taxes it. So, you know, it's, it's a completely different paradigm. And I think that the demand for commodities coming out of China and the whole of that Asian development story is going to make commodities the real story for the next 10, 15 years. And, um, you know, financial markets, um, I think, are going to have to pay the price for it. There's a, uh, a question in the thread for this space. <clears throat> Alistair, uh, do you think this situation equals a, in quotes, break something in Fed speak? Um, is this enough of a, of a catalyst to get the Fed to say, well, you know what, those rising rates we were talking about three days ago, maybe not so much. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I don't think so. No, um, I, I can understand. I can understand the point uh, hugely, and I should think that Jay Powell sitting there keeping his fingers crossed. But I think there's as much danger um, of the Fed acting too early in this, insofar as if it suddenly turned around and changed, we would say, um, you know, my God, they, you know, there must be something wrong. The Fed's been spooked. <laughs> if you see what I mean, I think, right? It's a confidence I, game, I, right? Yeah, it, I think there's a huge element of confidence. I mean, banking is confidence, for goodness sake. I mean, banks are, by definition, illiquid. So, you know, the fact that you have deposits or you're prepared to uh, let a bank owe you money, which is really what a deposit is, uh, basically, uh, is, I mean, it's based on your confidence that the bank will discharge that obligation to you. And, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have the liquidity to do it. So this is, um, it is a confidence game, entirely that. So, Michael, I think you've got the right word there. Let's let's differentiate between demand for commodities and demand for gold for a bit. Um, I always go back to there's a reason why I have lumbering gold in my Twitter picture because it relates to one of the papers I put out that I present on all over the country. Uh, and and you know, I was just in North Carolina talking about lumber relative to gold as a as a leading indicator of risk. Um, gold does fit in the opportunity set of risk off safe haven assets in the sense that usually when you're in high volatility pulses for equities, like we're seeing today, you know, gold will benefit. There's a bit of a flight to safety trade type of behavior in gold. But for the most part, gold really doesn't correlate to very much except for those, you know, you can argue fleeting moments of time. That's not an argument for being bullish or bearish on gold. It's just about kind of what drives it. Talk us through the thesis for a longer term period of outperformance of gold against other commodities, right? So you've got the, the idea of commodities in general, but the question is, would, would gold be sort of the, the top performer? In that. Yeah. Um, 
It, it, uh, that is um, an excellent question because um, I've done a bit of research into this. And if you look at the relative volatility of commodities priced in gold compared with commodities priced in fiat currencies, all the volatility pretty much is in fiat currencies. You could actually say that a basket of commodities actually does more what a currency does that, that or should do, uh, a medium of exchange should do, than the currencies themselves. They lose their purchasing power. There's huge great swings in it and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, if you look at commodities priced in gold, there is relatively little variation. And this all fits in with this sort of meme that, um, you know, you could, in Roman times, you could have bought a toga for the same price you pay for a decent suit today. Um, I mean, broadly, that's sort of true. And um, if, that, if that really is true, then by definition, the price of everything in gold basically um, it doesn't change that much. But we do see those prices change hugely in fiat currencies. So I think the first thing I would say is that um, assuming there is no sort of dramatic change in um, relationships generally, then what you're likely to see is rising prices in commodities because the purchasing power of the currency which you account in is going down. So that's the important thing. There will come a point, however, if, this, if the fall in currencies does accelerate, where you get a flight out of currencies into something tangible just to get the hell out of failing paper currencies. Now, at that stage, gold, which is legal money, will be favoured. And I think you will find that the prices of commodities measured in gold will tend to fall. It's a relative story. We're nowhere there yet, but so far, I mean, where we are in terms of where gold is compared with the price of oil and all the rest of it, we're within about 20% of what oil was priced in 1950 measured in gold. That is interesting. So I think that, it's, you know, in answer to your question, there will come a point where a flight into gold, because gold is money, it is the top money, it is Gresham's law, if you like, real beneficiary of Gresham's law. I think you will find that gold will then outperform virtually everything else. But we're not there yet. And uh, we'll see anyway. But those are the two things that I would look out for. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one to answer because um, you've got a sort of public face and you've got the behind the scenes um, reality. And when you get someone like Jay Powell, or in our case, we've got um, uh, Bailey standing up and prognosticating, you think, no, that's not right. I must admit, actually, um, getting off, off target, you know, off the subject slightly, watching the American uh, senators um, uh, asking questions of Jay Powell. I mean, I was absolutely horrified at the lack of understanding of basic economics that these guys appear to have. I felt rather sorry for Jay Powell. I would have, I would have, you know, I would have started swearing, I think, uh, pretty early on in that procedure if I was him. But we mustn't underestimate um, the uh, possibility, let's put it that way, that uh, central bankers actually are aware of the dangers that they face. Um, I mean, for example, the cooperation between the Fed and the Swiss National Bank, uh, before it became really obvious that Credit Suisse was in trouble, I think is a pretty good indication that these guys are very much aware that there are problems out there and they need coordinate in order to deal with them. The problem really is that it always gets to a stage where 
um, you know, the crisis is going to happen um, and there's nothing they can really do about it. It's just the way in which things have gone. It's the result of policies. I mean, the whole idea of QE, basically, it commits the central bank to paying do top dollar, top yen, top euro for its assets, which are bound to go down in value. And that's actually what's happened. So they've got themselves committed into policies which were destructive. But there's nothing they could do about it. That's, it's the political reality, and it's also the way in which they analyze the economics of it. I mean, they don't understand economics. Some of them understand money. I don't know that they do at the top of the tree, but um, you know, some of the advisors within the central banks do understand money. They do understand credit. But when it comes to that big picture economics, I'm afraid they're failing hugely. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know that I can add really to that. Just uh Taking a look again as we're chatting because I'm I'm playing catch up myself from the last couple of days of traveling. Um, I did a quick calculation just given the regional banks, which I know you mentioned you don't necessarily kind of pay too much attention to relative to the large ones, but the regional bank ETF this week is uh, down more than any other uh, single week during the COVID crash. Yeah, it's really, disastrous, isn't it? Like, it, I mean, yeah. you can look at what's happening this week and suddenly you know it's like, yeah, actually that it kind of looks crashy. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid it does. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's an interesting turnaround on events because, we, you know, we've all been looking at the GSIBs and indeed um, the regulators, I think, from the Bank of International Settlements downwards, you know, who, you know, who produce all this Basel III stuff. They've been looking at the big inter interconnected international banks and ignoring, um, you know, the, the stuff sort of way down the pile. Because that is the, you know, that's down to local regulators, et cetera, et cetera. They don't concern themselves with that. It's the international stuff. But it could be that that's where the danger comes from. You know, it's sort of chaos theory, if you like. You know, the old story about a butterfly in the Brazilian jungle and um, two months later you've got a hurricane somewhere. So <laughs> it could well be that. What are some of the other things that you're you're um, observing from, from the international front? I mean, look, the the... I, I myself have been very loud on this idea that I think the era of large cap U.S. dominance is probably over from an asset allocation perspective. That you don't have that that QE tailwind, and even if QE were to you know come back in full force, who they'll know if it would you know respond the same way that it did from 2013 onward. Um, any any other kind of interesting areas that that either look higher risk or look really interesting opportunistically? I mean, I, I'm with you on the commodity cycle. I'm with you on gold. But what about anything just from a country? perspective or equity perspective um do you know i don't i really don't get involved with that stuff anymore michael um i mean i can make general comments um you know i sort of really look at it from you know an economist's point of view and also an analyst of credits um point of view um i mean i you know you can make stories up about okay commodity related you've got to get you know lithium or you've got i don't know cobalt or you know Silver, silver is bound to, I mean, that's got left way behind. I mean, I just don't understand why it's priced where it is, but that it, it, it is priced where it is. Um, it, I mean, I think, I think one thing I would say is that um, you've got to also think in terms of capital flows. And um, Asia is determined to do away with the dollar. Uh, and I know that my American friends uh, think that, well, you know, OK, we can see that, but it's going to take a very long time. They still need the dollar, et cetera, et cetera. But they're coming up with plans, definite plans to do, to, to do away with the dollar. And the thing that's changed really since um, uh, sanctions were introduced against Russia and SWIFT was closed down is the realization that they've got to protect themselves from a failing 
fiat currency system. So I don't think it'll be very long before we get um, an announcement by uh, Sergei Glaziev, you know, the guy I was referring to earlier, who's doing the planning on this, um, of a new trade currency whereby um, you know, all the um, exchanges, commodity exchanges in Asia will be pricing in gold. Um, and so you will go and you buy in gold. Uh, the new currency will be a basis for the banks to provide credit for trade finance, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the moment that happens, I tell you, our, our fiat currencies are um, in intensive care and not only in intensive care, but with a death sentence over them. And it could actually happen very, very quickly. Um, if it does happen, then, you know, almost anything is going to be a bad investment in that sense. And this is why I think that, that really what people have got to look at, I mean, I'm talking about really individuals, not really so much, you know, the, the, the institutions and so on. But what individuals I think have got to look at is they've got to look, to look increasingly at how to protect themselves against these events. And the only way you can do it is to get into legal money. And believe it or not, since Roman times, going all the way back to the 12 tables in, what was it, 450, 448 BC, legal money has been gold. And uh, the great J.P. Morgan testified um, in front of Congress or Senate, one of the two, um, said that, um, you know, money is gold and the rest is credit. And he was dead right. Legally, that is the position even if a government turns around and produces rules or regulations to stop you actually owning the stuff. Meanwhile, if you can get some gold, get some silver, whatever, whatever you feel is necessary to ensure yourself against an event that is becoming increasingly likely, then that's the closest I will get to giving anyone investment advice. It's not investment advice, basically, because it's an advice to just get the hell out of investments, if you like. Do you think we've... Um at least for now, kind of put an end to the discussion of or the argument that uh, you, if you're going to protect yourself against fiat, that the way to do that is with digital gold, uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. I mean, that was the thing everyone was talking about forever. And, you know, it's, and I have to tell you, it's, it's a, um, I put out a tweet uh, sometime last year or maybe even the year before that, and I was basically showing that you know, I said something like unpopular opinion, gold is a far better hedge than Bitcoin in risk off periods and you only had really two major risk off periods to prove that but clearly in the covid crash you know gold performed better than bitcoin during that crash um do you think this, this finally puts an end to that or um are we going to kind of get revisit that at some point in the future <laughs> well i think i think this crypto thing is actually rather dying um the first thing i'd say about um cryptocurrencies is that they are not legal money and anyone who's sort of trying to make an argument for Bitcoin basically um, is an anarchist, I think, in that sense. Um, Bitcoin is not legal money. Not only that, but there's, it doesn't have the status of money, which is very, very important. Now, what I mean by this is if you've got a painting on your wall, let's say a Degas or something like that, someone comes in, breaks into your house, steals it, it disappears. You have lost a painting worth a hell of a lot of money. If subsequently you discover that it's somewhere else, that painting is still your property. Even though it might have gone through um, a reputable auction house, it might have been bought um, by someone completely unaware that it was a stolen property, he's got no right to it, none whatsoever. But the position with money and credit is different. In that case, if someone steals your 
you know, your wallet and you've got you got a thousand dollars in it, whatever, and goes and spends it, then you cannot reclaim that money off the shopkeeper or if you like the bank or whatever, which was in receipt of that money, unless it was a party to the theft. Now, this is very important because in Bitcoin's case, it is not legal money. And not only that, but the blockchain means that the authorities can actually do have a trail which they can work through. So if in the past your Bitcoin has been owned by someone who obtained it, say, through theft, through um, money laundering, through tax evasion, whatever, whatever the authorities can dream up, then they can take that off you. And if you refuse to I mean, and, and, and bear in mind that if you bought it through an exchange, um, you know, the exchange will have all the details, um, because, you know, from the KYC and all the rest of it. So that, you know, this is something which actually not only cannot work as money, it is not legally money. And I think it's a situation which is basically going to die. And you can see the authorities are just letting the whole of the ecosystem around cryptocurrencies gradually disappear into bankruptcy. That is now happening, um, and it's happening. We're, we're seeing this now with exchanges going down and all the rest of it. And I think it's that, that is a process where the authorities will say, well, you know, we told you so. We didn't do anything to, um, you know, to bring about the misfortune of everybody losing their money in this and all the rest of it. But I think it's a lot easier for them to do it with Bitcoin falling, say, from 20,000 as opposed to 60,000. So in my mind, um, do not confuse Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency with real legal money. It could be a very costly mistake. Yeah, I mean, I'd be there, uh, just to sum it up, it's, it's, I mean, the, the policy makers are protecting, protecting themselves, not investors. Uh, I mean, that's, that's yeah. really what it is. And, you know, in, in, I hate to say in fairness, but they, they'd probably go back and say, well, listen, you guys wanted a free market. Like everybody loves a free market well, until there's losses. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this this is I. I mean, the thing that's interesting is I when this originally started, I don't think the authorities quite knew how to deal with it. They were probably slow off the mark and all the rest of it. And their response was, well, we've got to invent something which is the equivalent of this, so that um, you know we can quietly sort of lean on um, the private sector alternative to the state currency. Uh, and come and they came up with CBDCs. And of course, in order to sell it, I mean, some of the stuff coming out of the Bank of International Settlements, which has been coordinating this, you know, they can use it to do this, do that. I mean, they, they can make you, they can run your life for you. <laughs> you know, this is um, this is 1984 stuff um, on steroids. Um, and I think the answer. I mean, we saw uh, a new. CBD, CBDC document come out of the Bank of England, and they're pursuing this. But you can see that, I mean, they toned the whole thing down and all the rest of it. And I think it's just, it's going to die a death. And I can't see this getting through American legislation either, because um, if uh, it cuts across the commercial banking network, the commercial banks are not going to support it. And as I understand it, I mean, you know Michael Morton more than me, but as I understand it, the banks are very, very heavily into paying the elections expenses of uh, both Democrats and um, and Republicans. So uh, I don't think that uh, there will be the support forthcoming for a US version of the CBDC, unless it's so turned down, it's just another form, if you like, of currency inflation. So, um, yeah. 
absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's not just um, it's, it's not just us. I mean, the Europeans have got real problems. You just look at what's going on in Germany in terms of prices. I mean, today they they had uh, food price inflation was well over twenty percent. Um, pasta was up thirty three percent. There's something else which was a hundred percent. I can't remember what it was, but I mean, it's just it's, it is crazy. You're absolutely right. Uh, I would say that I mean, you know, we're not going to escape this. What we're really seeing. Uh, is we're seeing the purchasing power of our pounds going down. That's what it is. It's not so much prices rising. And this is the point. As soon as people actually understand that it's the currency losing purchasing power, losing value measured in goods, not good prices going up, then I think at that stage you'll find that um, the currency will rapidly start dying. Um, I would I would say that the only way you can, um, you can, if you like, protect yourself against this is, as I said earlier, get into gold. Or silver. I mean, just get into physical money. Um, you know, so it's it, corporeal is a corporeal asset, an asset which is tangible. Debt is is an is an incorporeal asset. It's an asset which is not tangible. And at the moment, what we have is debt, um, which a lot of the people you're talking about, they've got debt. It's all denominated in another incorporeal in corporeal asset. If I can say the word properly. Um, which is uh, central bank currency. It's not tied to anything. And that, I think, is uh, we're beginning to see the, um, if you like, the, the, the foolishness of this situation. And I would also make another point, which um, may be a bit more worrying, I think, for uh, our UK listeners. Uh, and that is that if you look at the yield in the bond market, it is less than the equivalent yield in the US Treasury market. Now, that to me is completely the wrong way around, because in this world of fiat currencies, the um, if you like, the standard is uh, the dollar. Now, I can understand where you've got um, currencies which are genuinely separated from the dollar. But historically, we've been a more volatile version of the dollar. When people sell dollars, they sell sterling first. So um, I can see that the potential for uh, bond yields, gilt yields in this country to rise is somewhat greater than in America. And I'm not decrying the extent of the rise that's likely to happen in America. Um, but the effect of that on uh, the equity markets, I think, would also be very, very negative. Um, and I can see easily see sterling uh, going back down. I mean, I, I don't make currency forecasts and the huge flows involved. But I can easily see sterling going back down to test the lows that we recently saw against the dollar. So, you know, the situation for um, those of us in the UK is actually pretty grim. Uh, that's not a good feeling to leave listeners with. But <laughs> 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 yeah, I do. I mean, it, it, it all started, really. I mean, going way back, I remember being asked by people when I was traveling in Europe, you know, you know, do you think Bitcoin is money? And I would give them my opinion. <laughs> which was less formed than it is today, I must admit. Um, but uh, clearly, to me, it was not money. Um, it was a speculative counter. And the whole reason that people think it's, you know, thought it was money is because they were comparing the sort of hard stop at 21 million Bitcoin, and each one had to be mined at expense and all the rest of it, uh, with um, fiat currency, which has no upper limit um, currency and credit, which could be just be printed by the central bank or just created out of thin air by commercial banks. Um, and that's where the comparison was. And of course, everybody understands that very simple comparison. 
you then make the leap from that to thinking, well, you know, there's a restriction on the supply of Bitcoin. There is no restriction on the supply of currency and credit. Therefore, Bitcoin's going to go up. And that's, you know, so we have, we've had some sort of crazy forecasts of Bitcoin going to a million dollars and all the rest of it. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that was really the, the whole driving force behind it. Uh, so I felt I really did have to look into the legal position on this. And this is what came up. And I don't know to what extent uh, the authorities in their responses to all this over time have done the same thing. I would not be surprised if they haven't actually looked at the legal position and the difference between something like, um, you know, a currency uh, which gets stolen off you. Um, and once it's gone, it's gone. You've had it. I mean, OK, you might get someone sent to jail if you can prove that they stole it. Um, and as for the keys for the Lamborghini, what actually matters is the ownership of the Lamborghini. If you manage to track it, it's yours. You get it back. And whoever is in possession of it at the time, is not entitled to any compensation whatsoever. It's a very interesting point. I mean, it is a slightly broader point than just currency. I mean, they're consumer items, for example. If someone st steals food off you, you obviously can't get the food back. You probably wouldn't want it back <laughs> if they've already eaten it. So um, there, are, there are other instances like that. But the law of property rights is very, very clear on this. Bitcoin does not have the status of money in law. And therefore, it cannot operate as, as money. There is another point about it, and that is if you actually look at the relationship between money and credit, then um, money actually very rarely circulates. Credit is always what circulates. And so what you would have to do um, if you had Bitcoin is you would have to uh, make a, take account of uh, the ability to expand Bitcoin credit on balance sheets and also between individuals, you know, like... Um, I might promise someone, I'd say, you know, okay, uh, come and do some work on my home um, and I will pay you when you render me the bill. And so basically what's happening is someone comes and does the work um, and he has taken, if you like, uh, he's, he, he has a credit from me for that work in Bitcoin. Now, what's it going to be worth by the time the work's finished? I don't know. Nobody knows. It would be impossible to expand credit on the back of something both as volatile and as restrictive as Bitcoin. So it just cannot. It's just completely impractical as well as being illegal. By the way, <laughs> you took me back to my stomach bug given that talk about uh, food that somebody else has uh, owned uh, just <laughs> from last week. <laughs> All right, let's go to... Yeah, sure. Um, I, uh, there's a huge difference between between uh, gold money and a bank. A bank basically will take um, money off you, I mean, you know, with your <laughs> you know, as a willing party and give you um, in return a credit um, on its balance sheet. Um, it owes you the equivalent of that money in credit, which you can transfer anywhere else you want uh, under the terms of, um, you know, of, of, of the bank account. So, so um, that is the way banks work. We don't do that. Every um, ounce, every part ounce, if you like, of gold, silver, platinum group metals that we have for our customers are not on our balance sheet. We hold them in as, as custodians. We have no conflict of interest with um, our underlying customers, whereas a bank, of course, obviously does have a conflict of interest. It has various conflicts of interest, and the modern bank has enormous amounts of conflicts of interest, not only um, uh, in banking, but where banks act actually act as custodians. They also have 
conflicts of interest. I mean, you look at something like HSBC or JP Morgan, who act as custodians for uh, you know for, for um, uh, the GLD and the SLV um, uh, ETFs. I mean, you know, they have got not only custodial facilities, they've also got dealing desks, uh, they take possessions, um, they deal on behalf of miners, they do hedging, they do, I mean, everything. There's so much in the way of potential conflicts of interest. And do you remember the old term Chinese walls? We never hear that nowadays. I wonder why. Um, uh, yeah, there are rules and regulations, but basically um, you want to be, I think, if you're going to have someone look after your gold, your silver, your platinum group metals, you want that in custody. You want that held by a custodian. And in Canadian law, I think it's called bailment. Uh, very, very important distinction. And again, going back to uh, the Roman distinction between money and credit, um, there is absolutely no doubt at all that uh, when we store um, uh, metals in custody, then that is not only the property of the individual concerned, but we have to re return that property, if it was deposited with us, to um, the individual concerned. And if we have bought it on behalf of the con individual concerned, we must return that property to the individual. Very, very important distinction. What this means is that in a banking crisis, your metals are not at risk. They're stored in um, vaults around the world. I think we've got 11 vaults in different locations around the world. Um, so you can pick a jurisdiction, which probably, I mean, if you're resident in Canada, you think that Mr. Trudeau might um, uh, take a, a cavalier attitude in the future about um, property laws. You might want to have it stored outside Canada. And that, again, is the sort of facility which James Turk, who set up gold money, uh, you know, sort of really saw as being something meaningful. I mean, particularly since James is an American um, uh, national and uh, very, very much aware of uh, the, um, uh, you know, Roosevelt's um, executive order back in 1933, uh, basically um, banning the ownership of gold. So... Um, the, the answer basically is that we're not involved with banking at all. You've got to understand this distinction between a bank taking um, uh, your money and putting it on its balance sheet as a liability to you and um, an organization not operating as a bank, but acting purely as a in a custodial function. That's, that's what we do with gold money. And yes, I'm still involved with gold money. Great. I think that's a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Alice from Cloud here on Twitter. Check out his various writings, gold money, obviously. Uh, I have another space in about an hour. We'll see if the market somehow can magically turn green between now and then. Uh, thank you, Alistair. I do appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for joining. That's very much my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Mike. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com.
Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.